Welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. On February 4th, 2022, on the eve of the Beijing Olympics and prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Presidents Xi and Putin released a joint declaration of China and Russia's, quote, friendship with no limits, end quote, bringing the two countries closest they've been in decades. Less than three weeks later, Russia initiated the first major land war on the European continent since World War II seemingly with Beijing's blessing. Chinese state media propagandized on the Kremlin's behalf, and China refused to condemn Putin's actions. However, the West's unexpectedly harsh sanctions on Russia has knocked China into a somewhat more neutral stance, a far cry from the actions one would expect with a friendship with no limits. Beyond just the invasion of Ukraine, the budding strategic relationship between China and Russia is perhaps the most important bilateral relationship in the world today. Some observers see the growing union between Beijing and Moscow as a new Axis power, capable of challenging Western hegemony. However, things might not be quite so straightforward, as we'll discuss on today's episode of the Synopsis Podcast. I'm I'm curious, what do you think, I just want to start this off with a question, what do you think the average American, at least, maybe Westerner more broadly, thinks of the Chinese-Russian relationship? How do you, what's the common perception? You tell yours and then I'll give you my opinion. Yeah, I'm... I mean, I'll answer kind of with myself insofar as when I was re- when I was doing research for this episode, obviously I knew about the Sino-Soviet split, but I had thought that it the period in which the CCP and the USSR were quote-unquote besties was actually much longer than it ended up being. You know, we'll get to this in a minute, but they were only really friends with both of those governments in power for about six years. Um, and I think the... Western perception of both the historical relationship, again, between the USSR and the CCP, and the modern relationship between um, China and Russia under Xi and Putin, that um, that friendship is actually much shorter than I think a lot of people would think. So that, w- that was my impression coming in. So I'll turn it back on you. Yeah, I mean, as, as a history student, even it, this wasn't even emphasized to me because so many people look at the, the Cold War as a primarily, and rightfully so, as like the America's excuse me, the Americans vis-a-vis the Soviets, um, ignoring the fact that there was a giant 300-pound nuclear-armed gorilla in the room named China at the same time that actually wasn't getting along too well with the Soviets at the same time. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of history that we can talk about with China and Russia. And I do think the most productive place to talk about, we don't want to go too far back. I think the most productive place to start would be the revolutions for both of them that uh, ousted the monarchies and then quickly, uh, like at least with the Soviets, rolled into uh, communism very quickly. With the Chinese, they fought an entire civil war. And then at the end of that war, the, Ch- the communists took power there as well. And if, and if you're interested more in this history, we refer, we refer you to our first episode on this subject. Right. So in China, we had... This was sort of the tail end of the century of humiliation, which, again, you might know if you've been listening. Um, This was the end of like a hundred-something-year period where China had felt itself subjugated by Western powers, Russia being one of those powers, by the way. Russia actually had control of what is now the the port of Dalian, which is right next to Beijing. Uh, They called it Port Arthur at the time, and they won that through concessions through a a war with China. Um, So China fell – the monarchy in China fell, uh, and then the nationalists took control. And the nationalists and the communists very quickly found themselves at odds. Uh, and this, mm-hmm. 
this continued up until the Japanese invaded in World War II, and then this like weird alliance between the communists and the nationalists formed, um, wherein they kind of kept stabbing each other in the back and then holding each other's hands at different points. It kind of just changed depending on who was winning. Um, but but yeah. at, at the end of this, the uh, the communists, of course, run the nationalists off to the island of Taiwan, and we are left with both communist China and communist Russia uh, with a giant shared land border and. How do they get along? Well, before we before we get into that, I actually just want to flesh out the history a bit more because I think that's a great overview. But I want to give um, a couple key facts and a couple key dates just to kind of get into people's mind. Um, you can say that we're starting this episode at 1911, which is the date of the nationalist revolution in China, not the communist revolution nationalist. Um, and, you know, only a couple years later in 1917, that's when the Russian revolution takes place and obviously overthrows the Tsar and, um, you know, Russia falls under communism. So we're really kind of starting this episode at the beginning of the 1900s and taking the history from there. Obviously, there was interplay between China and Russia in the history before that, but given the degree to which the respective communist revolutions, as well as the nationalist revolution in China, shaped the modern countries today, it, it kind of makes sense to start here. Um, and you know another important thing to note um, about the, the the conflict with Japan is that yeah there definitely was backstabbing but Japan was also an enormous bastard so there was some there was quite a lot of uh, cooperation um, as well between the communists and the nationalists KMT um, again we discussed this in the first episode but it's it's worth yeah yeah I mean like it, I, I bring this up because prior to the communists really taking power in after World War One, excuse me, after World War Two in 1950, uh, the USSR was more than happy to work with the KMT government, even while there was communist guerrilla forces trying to overthrow and institute a communist government in China. Um, which again, which goes back to my point at the top of this episode, which is that the USSR and the CCP were aligned for a lot shorter than I think a lot of people would think. Yeah, I think the operating thesis is that well. What, what we really want to dig at here is how much does ideology play into the Russo-Chinese alliance uh, versus more practical considerations. And this is a very clear case of practicality trumping ideology. Now, granted, the communists did not really get big until the nationalists were pushed away by the, by the Japanese. Like the Japanese more or less cleared the path for the communists to come into power, really hollowed them out. Um, and so before that, like if you're Russia, you have to deal with the Chinese government, which at that time it was the Kuomintang. Um, and right. Russia and, had zero. And, and, sorry, real quick. And real quick, this is out of necessity. Like in 1937, the KMT and the USSR signed a non-aggression pact because both of them have bigger concerns, namely Japan. Again, so your your point about dealing with each other is exactly correct. Yeah, and there's. I'm not an expert on what exactly was going through the minds of the Soviet leadership leading up to World War II. There was the Molotov-Ribbentrop, excuse me, Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, um, which we should all be aware of these days, where the Germans and the Russians had a, a pact to help each other out and to carve up Poland, um, and, the, and the Germans backstabbed them. So really, like, I don't think the Soviets knew for sure that they were going to be fighting a two-front war, but they knew that something was coming and that you know, having a ma- mass conflict with the Chinese at that point in time was just not in their, in their interest, whereas the Japanese empire was expanding and had been expanding for a while. Yeah. Um, so we're going to fast forward history to the end of World War II, 1950s. Um, again, just want to reiterate one point, not really on topic for this episode, but I don't think a lot of people know how big of a bastard Japan was like prior to <laughs> us dropping some bombs on them. If you want if you want a really, you know, good couple of quick examples, Google the rape of Nanking and more specifically the contest to kill 100 people using a sword in 
the Nanking Massacre, two Japanese army officers, literally exactly what it sounds like, raced each other to see who could behead 100 POWs, Chinese POWs, faster using a katana, uh, just to give you a scope of how big of a problem Japan was. So, the, um, you know, Russia, uh, China under the, the nationalists, they had, they had other concerns. Um, but anyway, enough, enough about Japan. This is not an episode about Japan. But um, everyone thinks about anime and everything, and no one ever thinks about horrific, horrific war crimes. So... <laughs> You're uh, saying that as if anime itself is not some form of a war crime. Fair enough. Um, so let, 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 that said, let's uh, let's move forward. So um, in te- in 1950s, obviously, um, the CCP takes control of mainland China. The Kuomintang is pushed out to the island of Taiwan, uh, Taiwan, excuse me, where they reside to this day. Um, and you know, there's there's a couple things to cover. Most importantly, uh, the Korean War, which obviously takes place right around that time as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll back up just a little bit. Um, so at the end of World War II, you know, famously, all these nations involved were hollowed out. China was no exception. Um, China is second only to the Soviet Union in terms of a number of casualties sustained throughout the war. Um, people really don't tend to emphasize enough the role that the Chinese played in World War II. That, that is kind of an aside. The, the point is, the entire Chinese coastline was practically obliterated. The population was significantly decimated. Decimated is the wrong word, but... You get the point. Um, so the the budding of the relationship between the Chinese communists and the Soviet Union is one of the Soviet Union coming in and swooping in and uh, pulling the Chinese up by their bootstraps, essentially, like sending them millions and millions in equivalents of today's dollars, rebuilding their infrastructure, sending the military aid, um, beginning a new phase Technology of cooperation. know-how transfers. Exactly. Um, yeah. And Stalin and Mao had this very uh, famously close relationship where – you know, as much of an egotistical guy as Mao may have been, he was actually pretty happy to play the junior partner in that relationship because he saw Stalin as this revolutionary figure. And there was a lot of uh, – there, there was – I'd say like the majority of their ideology was aligned. There were some discrepancies like, for example, the Soviets, you know, or at least uh, original Marxism said that, you know, the, uh, the way to communist utopia will – begin with an urban class up, uh, rising up against the proletariat, whereas in China, Mao was like, well, we don't have an urban industrialized class, but we do have peasants. Maybe they can do it. And so that was like you know, a pretty minor thing, but apparently to them it meant something. Um, but yeah, any- no, I mean, th- these, are, these are fine points on communist ideology, but the, the biggest element that allowed Mao and Stalin to remain aligned is essentially the willingness it was Mao's perceived willingness of Stalin to go to the mats for communism as you know we're going to talk about in one second Khrushchev was seen as significantly weaker um, in terms of his aspirations for fighting the bourgeoisie global um, capitalist class and everything yeah. and that is really among yeah and, and among other things is really kind of the beginning of the split uh, between the, the Chinese and the Russians yeah I mean I know we're, we're dancing back and forth between time zones here but um, it is worth emphasizing that Stalin was significantly more militant in his ideology than Khrushchev, and that militarism really inspired Mao. He really took a hold to it. Um, Stalin, towards the end of his days, was openly talking about the coming struggle with the West and uh, wasn't necessarily he, – he was, he was one to really downplay the destructive potential of nuclear weapons, uh, whereas Khrushchev was definitely not. Um, but Mao, again, like gravitated much more closely to Stalin than to Khrushchev. Um, but Stalin didn't die until 1953, and between that time, uh, the Korean War broke out in 1950, right? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, 
So the North Koreans, with Stalin's blessing, invaded the South Koreans, nearly eradicated the entire state, and then the Americans swooped in with a big fancy naval landing at Inchon and pushed them all the way back to the border, and then China got directly involved, also with with, uh, Stalin's blessing. This was all because the Russians were too afraid to go toe-to-toe with the Americans, or at least... Um, I guess cynically cautious about doing it, but happy to let the Chinese be their meat shield in this case. So the Chinese went in with probably like a 500,000 person army, honestly. It was an enormous army um, and took massive casualties fighting the Americans. Um, but the point, the point being was that China got directly involved and its hands, got its hands quite bloody in the fight for the spread of communism, whereas the Russians kind of just like sat back at this point and at the very end of the war, Stalin dies. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, that's a good summary. Um, and I think important to note is that the Chinese were, in this instance, willing to fight and die for the Russian spread of communism, um, you know, again, as a result of the friendship between uh, Mao and Stalin. And just, and we'll get to this a little bit later on in the episode, but just to give some dates, again, Mike said that Stalin dies in 1953 after the end of the Korean War. Mao dies in 1976, almost 25, more than 25 years later. So, you know, when we get to this Sino-Soviet split, you have to understand that much of this is being led by Mao's, uh, well, China's obviously led by Mao mostly during that time. And the reaction to Russia is a result of him seeing the passing of the torch within Russia go in ways that he doesn't want to, namely with Khrushchev. So let's get to, let's get to Khrushchev, unless there's anything else you want to add real quick. Or No, no. I mean, again, like one of the central themes of what we're going to talk about here is, again, the ideology versus pragmatism. Uh, debate, but there's also an element of personality involved here. Um, there's questions today about like where would Russia and China be if like she and Putin were in a bus ride together and it went off a cliff? What would happen? Um, and I, I think that the the true answer is nobody really knows. Uh, nobody knew back then either. No, um, and, and I guess for the first three years of Khrushchev being in power, things were more or less the same. Um, I guess I guess like yeah, now would be a good time to get into it. Like the. The discrepancy between the way Khrushchev viewed the Soviet Union's role in the world and the way that Mao viewed the communist global system more broadly is really the source of the split. But it doesn't happen overnight. It takes almost, it takes what, like eight years, almost nine years to become official before they actually sever diplomatic relations with one another. Exactly. Yeah, so we're going to go over um, kind of a bunch of the cracks in the relationship right now. But one, just one thing to keep in mind for the remainder of this episode as we talk about China and Russia, you can view the relationship kind of along three uh, axes, namely the ideological uh, communists, like both of them are communists. Obviously, it doesn't play into today, but we'll discuss uh, Xi and Putin's ideologies when we get to that point in the history. There's the personal, um, which again, we, we talked a lot about the personal relationship and admiration that Mao had for Stalin. And that's not nothing. That is a big deal. Like you, can, you can see the Sino-Soviet split coming as a direct result of Khrushchev and Mao. And you have to, you have to understand. Obviously, um, China under Mao is a one one party, one man state. So even the smallest things, like a personal dislike of someone, can have enormous geo, um, geostrategic ramifications. And then the last one is obviously the practical concerns, which is uh, does this relationship make sense economically, militarily, all that sort of stuff. Um, and Especially today, and I don't want to, I know we're jumping all around, but that t- today that relationship on the practical concerns is probably the strongest it's been in a number of years. But let's um let's get back to the sign. We, we can but, we can argue over that later. Yeah, um, isn't isn't this great? Like we will we will guys have a little section where we go back and forth, me and Sam, and we uh we share our thoughts and our opinions, and we tend to get really positive feedback. Uh, feedback along those lines from you guys, but we need to spoon feed you guys a ton of vegetables in the form of your history so you can actually understand 
why we're saying the things that we're saying and be able to form some opinions for yourself because you're going to find by the end of this, like you kind of have to. There is no, no one can predict the future on where this is going. But anyway, let's go back to where we were, which is 1956. And in 1956, uh, the key moment to understand was Khrushchev's secret speech where he, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, in 1956, Khrushchev, uh, like pulled back the veil on all the horrible things that Stalin had been doing in the Soviet Union and denounced him uh, and embarked on a campaign of de-Stalinization. And this was where the ideological split between the the, uh, Chinese and the Russians really began in earnest. One very quick thing I'd like to note is that you know, some have argued that the Cultural Revolution was partially in response to Khrushchev's speech because Mao saw the removal of the cult of personality around Stalin as a direct threat to his own cult of personality. So he embarked upon the Cultural Revolution to enshrine himself in a manner that Stalin was unable to do, as obvious by the fact that he was denounced after his death. Yeah, that's actually an excellent point. I mean, Stalin's regime coming down, like, remember, Stalin ruled through fear. He, I mean, people would just disappear out of his photographs, and if you said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, you were dead. Um, and that held true up until the week that he died. Um, you sh- <laughs> Everyone who hasn't seen the yeah, death yeah. of... <laughs> I was going to say, everyone who hasn't seen The Death of Stalin, like, you need to go watch it. It, it, is, it is funny, it is dark humor, but it is actually pretty accurate as to what happened, including, um, like, uh, what's, what was his name? Beria, who was the, uh, one of the KGB heads responsible for a lot of torture. He was killed uh, after Stalin wasn't there to protect him anymore and grant him favor. A lot of people were just, like, overthrown and burned and whatever and killed at the end of, the, of uh, this de-Stalinization campaign. And so Mao was not without fear, and, yeah, one of his watermark programs, the cultural revolution was a, in a key way, like you described, a result of this. Yeah. Um, you know, and so one, so, so that's one element, obviously, the dismantling of the cult of personality. But another thing uh, that drove Mao, and we touched on this, was Khrushchev's ability or, or willingness to engage in peaceful coexistence with the West. That was the term, peaceful coexistence. Uh, whereas the Maoist, Stalinist doctrine called for a worldwide communist revolution. So we, we touched on ideology, but this is important to understand. That's like that's like ideological slash personal. Um, but, you know, I think, I think we've kind of touched a lot on that. I do want to get into some practical concerns that did end up driving the relationship out the door. Um, <clears throat> the first of, well, you know, there's a bunch, but we'll kind of just rattle them off. One of them, very important uh, crisis moment was the Dalai Lama fleeing to India. And, you know, if you've listened, if you know anything about China, you know that, that the, the subject of the Dalai Lama and um, Tibetan independence and all that sort of stuff is a very contentious topic. Uh, obviously, China views Tibet entirely as its own. Tibet obviously wants to be free. The Dalai Lama, kind of the chief spokesperson or, you know, one of them for that movement. Um, so when he flees to India to escape Chinese persecution and to continue to advocate his case abroad, the fact that the USSR remains neutral is an enormous thorn in the side to China. Because this, uh, behind Taiwan, obviously, this is one of their marquee issues. And the fact that their closest ally, the Soviet Union, you know, two brothers in communism, was unwilling to uh, you know, advocate on China's behalf internationally was really, really rubbed the CCP the wrong way. Yeah, that and the fact that Mao's Cultural Revolution and Great Leap Forward were both heavily criticized by the Soviet Union Politburo. Um, so you've got all these key facets of Chinese communist reign, the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, the occupation of Tibet, all of which the USSR underneath Khrushchev is suddenly not on board with. Uh, and so very quickly, yeah, we can see that there are some ideological splits. Um, this is before they even officially sever their diplomatic ties. One thing that um, I, I don't think people totally realize is that China actually went to war in Vietnam. 
not long after the Americans pulled out, despite the fact that the Vietnamese had been armed and aided and abetted by the Soviet military. Um, as a matter of fact, the Soviet Union had a pact with the Vietnamese that was promising them to like, help them in the aid of an invasion, and they just, in the excuse me, the event of an invasion, they just didn't honor it. Uh, also, they kicked the Chinese out within like three months of them attempting to invade. They took like 50,000 casualties in a funny, funny preview of what was to come many, many decades later. Um, soldiers running out of gas I ain't and no water. no fortunate and, son. Yeah. I wonder what the Chinese um, anyway. equivalent of fortunate son is. I actually know what the Russian one is, but... Gonna... Yeah. Anyway, okay. um, <laughs> that aside, <laughs> another another um, key uh, fracturing point was in 1958. The CCP actually launched one of its many attempted invasions of Taiwan without the Soviet blessings, um, causing enormous tensions. This this was kind of a Cuban Missile Crisis before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Obviously, the U.S. as uh, the U.S. was backing Taiwan more openly then than it is now, um, and the implications of uh, Taiwan attack, or excuse me, China attacking Taiwan, which was an ally of the United States at the time. Huge, huge nuclear tensions, and that was not kosher with the Soviet Union. And the fact that this was done without even their cult consultation, much less their blessing, um, was an enormous. That's a big deal. That's a well. really big yeah, deal. I mean, because yeah. because yeah. I mean, up up until this point, the Americans had been sailing aircraft carrier groups between the Strait of uh, yeah and the Strait of Taiwan. Um, so it was very clear where the Americans saw themselves in this conflict, and it's possible they could have gotten involved had the invasion been a little bit more successful. And yeah, so, so for, the, for the Chinese to come that close to provoking the Americans without consulting the Soviets first, that's huge. Um, it's, it's really, like, it's really hard to overstate that. Um, like Mao, Mao, that he was ready to rock and roll with the nuclear warheads. He did not care. He, he saw the war as inevitable. Khrushchev did not. Khrushchev thought the rapprochement was the right way to go. And there were some ebbs and flows in that, you know, okay. Culminating with the U2 incident with Gary Powers and everything where he felt stabbed in the back by Eisenhower, but still like that, all that did was chill relations and sow some distrust, but it didn't mean that Khrushchev or the Soviets wanted to go to war. Um, Mao, I mean, he had every intent of starting a war over Taiwan back in the 50s. Um, and again, did not say boo to Khrushchev about it before he embarked on it to like give you an idea of where these two powers were sitting at this point in time. Yeah, and, and on that topic of not saying boo, and this is the last one and then we'll move on, but it's important to understand that at this point in time, China was definitely the junior partner in the relationship. And this is important because another point of tension occurred that same year, again in 1958, where the USSR wanted to install naval bases on Chinese soil. And um, <clears throat> you have to understand there, there's – there's Soviet neighbors and then there's Soviet neighbors. Like if you're something like a Poland, you're partitioned and entirely under the thumb of the Soviet Union, whereas China was obviously an independent state and as evidenced by the split later on, was able to strike its own path. So, you know, China said, go pound sand to the Soviet Union over this because they saw this as an encroachment on their territory and an attempt by the USSR to subjugate China, much like it had other, um, what's the term, uh, Soviet states, I forget, there's, there's, there's a term for it, but, um, you know, like the Polands, the Kazakhstans, all that sort of stuff. The Warsaw Pact or something, I don't know. Yeah, the Warsaw Pact, yeah, Warsaw states, yeah. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, yeah one, one other point, because we'd be remiss not to mention it, um, the point at which the diplomatic relations were actually broken off uh, was a direct response to the Soviets arming and aiding the uh, the Indians during their war in 1962 with the Chinese. Right, so India and China had a brief border war in 1962 that the Indians got the worst end of, but the Chinese were aiding them with technology and and, and arms um, in the middle of that conflict. And so, in protest, the Chinese you know, cut off their 
embassies completely from the Soviets. Uh, and so the two at that point, and it wasn't very long after that before they actually started shooting at each other briefly. Like there was a little border skirmish in 68 that I think it's overhyped as being a border war when in reality it was like, what, 60 to 75 casualties on each side. Uh, but that's still a really big deal between two, at that point, nuclear-armed nations, ostensibly of the same ideology, shooting each other over a border that really didn't matter that much over in the over in the Russian Far East. Yeah, really more of a pissing contest than any, of any actual geostrategic concern. And, you know, the, the, the point on India is not, is, is not relevant to this episode, but the relationship between India and Russia is a key thing to understand to make sense of the world today and how you know, India in the modern context has to play a balancing act between uh, friendship with Russia, where it receives all, almost all of its munitions and arms and weapons and all that sort of stuff uh, from, whereas with the United States, which is, you know, the Quad Alliance and everything is seen trying to combat China. Um, not really relevant to today's episode, but it's worth, you know, that, that, that history goes back. I think that's nothing. actually quite relevant, though, um, because Russia continued, I mean, you've said it, Russia continues to be one of the biggest dealers in arms and advanced weapon systems to the Indians, despite the fact that the Indians and the Chinese to this day are still beating each other with clubs, quite literally. Exactly. Yeah, so international relationships is really complicated and messy is the point that I'm trying to make there. Yeah, we didn't even touch on yeah. the fact that, the, <laughs> that the, um, the Chinese actually cooperated with the Americans in arming and funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan when the, when the Soviets were occupying Afghanistan. Yeah, so I think yeah. I think that more or less like that solidifies the point. And by the way, that was after Mao Zedong died. So the, the split at first was driven, you could argue, off of a personal difference between Khrushchev and Mao, but it persisted after Mao's death. In fact, it, it persisted until the wall actually fell. Yeah. Um, just to clarify one point, obviously there was that personal element which you mentioned, but you know, not to minimize the practical concerns, is we did just we did want to spend some time highlighting to give you a sense that it's not just one thing; it's everything, like when these sorts of enormous consideration decisions are made, it's not just ideology. It's not just, I like this guy or I don't like this guy. It's not just, you know, oh, they're, they're sick in a naval base in our port, that sort of thing. It's everything all at once and it all interplays and feeds off each other. Like you can see how there's a kind of overlap between the personal um, like and dislike of Mao and Khrushchev and then how that bleeds into their perceptions of uh, the ideology of, of communism. So... Yeah, just it, it is everything all at once, I guess. Everything, everywhere, all, all at once. I've heard it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Um, so anything else we need to touch on here? No, I mean, I think at this point it's best to skip ahead to the dissolution of the Soviet Union because then we're talking about actual Russia and actual China, not just the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. No, 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 no I, I disagree with that. I think there's, I still think there's a couple of uh, points that we need to touch on specifically after the death of Mao. Um, but just, I, I want to rattle off just a couple more points of contention in the relationship. Um, there was, um, after the the split officially occurs in 1962, um, <clears throat> there was a basically a Soviet scramble for Africa, just like the European uh, colonial scramble for Africa, where both the two countries were vying for competing influence in the continent. Um, you know, under their two separate ideologies. Um, the Africa thing is actually interesting now that you mention it. Um, since we're, we're just going to muse a little bit on the, the balance between ideology, personality, and pragmatism here. But, you know, Cuba was actually involved in Africa as well. To give you an idea of how much weight ideology adds to this equation, uh, the Cubans were arming and aiding the, uh, the Angolans primarily with their air force uh, in a little border war that they had with um, what is now Botswana in South Africa. There was a Western-dominated dominated government. Um, but you could argue, like, what interest did Cuba have in Angola? 
what interested what interest did any of the communist states have in Angola? I mean, they they were interested in resources in Africa, but you know, for the most part, I think they were they were excited about the idea of spreading the the revolution to this area that could maybe become you know aligned to them one day. Boy, we saw how that worked out with the Chinese and the Russians. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's hard to say what exactly they were thinking, but it's just it's interesting to point that out. Yeah. Yeah, another so one thing we, we kind of glossed over a lot. You mentioned obviously there was a border conflict between Russia and China. Um, you said both nuclear armed powers, but let's actually talk about China's nu- becoming nuclear armed because that was opposed by the Soviet Union in a joint element of cooperation with the United States. This is really important to understand. Um, both the United States and the Soviet Union had real concerns and were actively engaged in trying to prevent China from developing nuclear arms. Um, From the U.S.'s perspective, uh, this was done to try to keep a bipolar world, which was seen as easier to manage than a tripolar or multipolar world. Um, And from the USSR, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, the USSR was big daddy communism. Everyone, every other state was seen by them as a client state of their communism. And the fact that China was going to be able to develop these weapons would mean that it would not be so easily subjugated by the Soviet Union. Obviously, you, it, you know, you can't really invade a country so easily if they can just launch nukes at you. See, you know, mutually assured destruction in the entire history of the Cold <laughs> well, War. That, well, that and Khrushchev thought that yeah. Mao was completely Looney Tunes. So, as you mentioned, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. they, they saw the Chinese, they saw nuclear-armed China as a full liability. Um, and at one, well, at one point, the Soviets had actually supported the majority of Chinese weapons program for nuclear weapons and then completely rescinded all that support. The Soviet Union was not happy with the ensuing cult of personality that Mao undertook. Again, we discussed how he, t- he launched the Cultural Revolution as a result of the de-Stalinization under Khrushchev. Um, the Soviet Union was not really happy about that because that they they obviously were shifting away from that cult of personality, um, and they saw you know another communist nation raising Mao to the level that Stalin was as not just an ideological concern, but it meant that it was going to be harder to, to deal with them because the entire nation of you know lots and lots of people trying to probably the most populous nation at the, in the world at that time was uh, consolidated power under one man, and you know they kind of the Soviet Union saw that that. didn't necessarily work out great for them so yeah well it's funny that after Mao died the Chinese felt the same exact way about their consolidated power under one person and to 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 add a little bit extra spice on top of this when you talk to Chinese people today a lot of them if they're going to criticize Russia they criticize Putin along the same exact lines for being yeah for being like too much of a strong man um and they remember a time when that didn't work out very well for China so Mm -hmm. um speaking yeah so speaking of let's um we're gonna so the, the kind of important thing to understand from this history is that the Chinese-Russian relationship, the, the Sino-CCP-USSR um, relationship, is really one more of enemies, frenemies at best, than it is actual friendship. You can see how much time we spent discussing the conflicts between the two rather than any areas of cooperation. It was one kind of throwaway sentence where it's like, yeah, the Soviet Union sent China some money and technology and people and like, okay, yeah, but then they also spent all this time fighting. Um, So, you know, which we'll get to today in a second, but that is important to understand. You know, if history can serve as a guide to our present world and our future, then the budding friendship between Xi and Putin is much less certain than I think a lot of people uh, think it might be, and we'll discuss that in a minute. But I do just kind of want to bring us up to the present day um, in terms of history. Really, um, in starting in 1976, uh, after Mao's death, um, this kind of initiates a period of a thaw where relationships gradually 
the relationship gradually improves over time, really up until the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, as Mike mentioned, there's not it's not without tension. Obviously, the um, he said that uh, China fund, funded the Mujahideen when Russia or the Soviet Union was invading Afghanistan. That's obviously a big deal. Um, but overall, I'd say it was a trend of normalization, um, improvement of relationships, ending with uh, Gorbachev shaking hands, hands with Deng Xiaoping in uh, 1989 when the two countries established normal relationships again. And by that, I mean like consulates and, you know, embassies, that sort of stuff. Anyway, I, I rambled. I apologize for that. No, no. I mean, I think I think that's a good way to sum it up. I mean, the 80s were mostly quiet. It was just a whole lot of them saying the same sorts of things like, oh, we don't really trust those guys across the other side of the border. Um, but what are you going to do? We're going to just have to live with it. Maybe we'll fund this proxy war and they'll fund theirs. And then hopefully by the end of this, we don't blow each other up. Um, I don't know if anyone saw the end of the Soviet Union coming, but I think the Chinese and the Soviets had sort of settled into a, you know, a, a more a more typical battle, like subtle battle for regional influence. And that's like part of the reason that the Chinese funded the Mujahideen, right? Because uh, like, and this is actually important to note even for today, is that they both have interest in Central Asia, like deep interest in Central Asia. It's kind of up in the air as to who the big daddy is going to be in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, all those places, uh, even today. Um, but anyway, so let's backtrack a little bit. I want to get to the, the point where the wall actually falls, because it's almost like the relationship hits a complete reset. Um, from what I could tell, and granted, I was like just barely alive at this point. I was yeah. born in 1990. <laughs> um, but by 1996, I mean, Russia and the PRC were already proclaiming some kind of a partnership and identified the Americans as their main adversary, right? For all those, for all those of you out there who say that it was our fault for not letting Russia into NATO in 1996, like they were already identifying us as their adversary. So as an aside, um, so how do the Chinese exactly react to the fall of the Soviet Union? How do they feel about the new state of Russia? I'd say like the majority of people did not really care. The majority of people were subsistence living um, and just going about their lives, whereas the Maoists claimed some level of vindication uh, because they felt like they could point to the ideological consistencies of Khrushchev and everyone else who came after him as uh, undermining the, the USSR, weakening the system, whereas most like classic socialists were very disappointed that you know this – this uh, cornerstone of the empire had fallen. Yeah, I, I think in general, they put the blame on people. Like, well, the, the Russians do too. They blame Gorbachev. Um, they also blame the, the broader Soviet system, which was mismanaged and stagnant in their eyes. And then the West um, seeking to undermine the Soviet Union as well. Um, so I guess like Sam, if you want to take us through a little bit of the economic liberalization of the two. Yeah, so one thing I wanted to touch on um, kind of in this era that's not directly relationship um, it's not like it doesn't directly contribute to the relationship, but is, I do want to touch on is do a brief compare and contrast of the quote economic liberalization of both countries, um, just because it's 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 interesting and worth understanding. Um, so obviously the Soviet Union fell in a manner and a rapidity that no one was really expecting, least of all the Soviets themselves, um, and the ensuing pri quote, and I'm really putting quotes around this privatization. Um, was very haphazard and not really even that. It was more, and I'm, you, you know, you might know this, dear listener. Um, it was really more of a gift to well-connected uh, individuals to the state of state-owned enterprises like gas, mining, you know, he heavy industry, that sort of stuff, which the Soviet Union was known for. Um, and you know, as a result, Russia suffered tremendously in the 1990s under um, the first couple years of their 
I, I don't even know what to call it. The first, the first capitalism. decade, really, like that entire yeah. that entire Soviet bloc, like Ukraine and Belarus included, uh, had an incredibly rough go of it in the '90s when um, a lot of people went hungry all over again. This is this is this is when like Russia became the AIDS capital of the world and all sorts of other horrible things. Like this was a very very bad time for this part of the world, um, and it wasn't even really like a capitalist opening. One one very quick point in it is that you can tie Putin's rise to power directly, I think, onto this poor economic condition that Russia found itself in at that point in time. Like, to go from communism to, quote, capitalism, quote, you know, and have your standard of living decline really was a fertile ground for a strongman to make promises of fixing everything and improving life. And, you know, credit to Putin, it did things did improve under him, but that's because he started from a very low baseline. The same can kind of be said for the experiment in capitalism in China that we'll get to in just a second, where like, yeah, there was enormous improvements in standards of living, but that's only because people were starving to death prior to that. So <laughs> no, nowhere to go but up. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, yeah. no, no, please don't, don't be. Um, the, the growth of the Russian economy was driven primarily just by them unleashing the natural resources that they already had. Uh, but as you identified, yeah, most of those industries were just sold off to people that were the closest to centers of power, the oligarchy, right? So it wasn't it wasn't a true capitalist economy by any stretch. It was just suddenly opened up to competition with the West and the markets, uh, the barriers to markets were opened. So like suddenly, famously, you had McDonald's suddenly appearing in Moscow, right? Um, yeah, and then like the, the industrial heartland of a place like Ukraine, shocker, can't compete with Germany. Yeah, um, I mean, that's... The, quote, liberalization of the economy, Russia's economy in the 1990s, is really a topic unto itself, um, kind of a disaster zone. And it's not unreasonable to assert that, that like I said, in no small part gave rise to Putin today. But um, I, I, that we, we can talk about this forever. So I do just kind of want to briefly contrast that to China's economic liberalization, which took place right around the same time, um, 1989, under Deng Xiaoping, obviously the first economic reforms. Um, and... China's economic liberalization was small c conservative, as in it took it took incremental steps over time to liberalize its markets. Um, you know, not all at once, not like totally a solution of stuff. And you know, as you can see, if, if you compare the per capita GDP today, even though China started off lower um, prior to both of their liberalizations around the same time, it is doing significantly better than Russia's economy today. And I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily advocating for state capitalism or whatever you want to call China's economy, but um, empirically, the direct... And, and, you know, it's not a totally fair comparison because the CCP is still in power. The USSR is not still in power. So I'm sure people are wondering what the nature of the relationship is like now. Um, and for that, you really have to zero in on the Xi and Putin relationship itself, I think. If you're if you're down to skip ahead to that point, I think that's probably a, yeah. this probably no, I, a good time. Yeah, I th so I think we brought everyone up to speed. So let's uh, let's get into today. Yeah, so where are we today? Well, I mean, the the way I heard it put to me is the younger of an analyst you are, the more optimistic you are about the Russia and Chinese relationship because you've seen the images of Xi and Putin shaking hands and uh, drinking, like, I, I don't even know what that was, Baiju or something together. Like, they had their aprons on and everything. They've met over 30 times. Like, they have this supposedly super close relationship. Russian propaganda sings the praises of China. Chinese propaganda sings the praises somewhat of Russia, I would argue, a little bit less. Um, and that's kind of where we are. But, like, the way this has evolved over time um, – has been like still like uh, it's it's kind of a continuation of what we had in the 90s things have grown steadily closer and closer as a partnership of 
like more, it's like a partnership of mutual grievances against the United States more so than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really the point right here. There is not, there, there's some economic synergies between the two countries, but there's really no ideological considerations that would have the two aligned. And what, and what do I mean by that ideology today? Obviously, you know, one of them isn't communist, but like, you know, the United States and a country like even France, whatever misgivings you may have, freedom fries, you know, all that sort of stuff, there's a clear ideological um, unification that drives the two countries together. They have a relatively consistent view of a liberal international world order. Um, I, I'm really struggling to see any such shared vision between China and Russia today other than one of antagonism to the U.S. bipolar – or excuse me, unipolar world, though, even though that's like you know questionable at this point. But really I think the, the biggest um, ideological factor that drives the two countries together is their view of um, spheres of influence where they're able to exert power near to them um, in a manner that the, the West generally would find unacceptable, but they see as their right um, to enforce upon, upon their weaker neighbors. Yeah, I think I think the key difference to understand. Okay, okay, right. So a lot of a lot of analysts are looking at this budding relationship between not just Russia and China, but also the other players like Iran and Venezuela, um, as being the backbone of a new and future axis between these different countries. This is not an axis of ideology as much as it is an axis of well. I, I guess recognizing that China is the senior partner in the room and ostensibly does not care about your internal affairs. Uh, like Chinese aid and Chinese support comes with very few strings, if at all, attached when you compare it uh, to American aid, uh, right? Like like it's like famously the the Belt and Road Initiative from China is like right they're they're, they're big. Um, their investments into infrastructure and construction projects and all, uh, we'll, we'll build you a port in Sri Lanka. We'll build you a highway in Congo. We'll build you all the, all this great stuff. And we don't care about human rights record. Um, it's very difficult. Or if you're a dictatorship. Or if you're a dictatorship, right. It's very difficult for those types of countries to secure that level of funding through the world bank or any other quote unquote Western dominated institution, because they come along with all kinds of stipulations like your environmental record has to be such and such. Your human rights record has to be clean. Um, and so that's really where we're at. Like, the I, I was watching interviews um, in like on the ground in China about like, hey, the, the topic was, what do you think about Russia? And overwhelmingly, the sense was, well, while there's the United States, we have a common problem. But as soon as there's no United States, like or at least the perception of a threat from the United States, China and Russia will go back to having their own problems. So, exactly. So on, on the topic of their own problems, I actually just want to finish a, a thought that you started right at the beginning of this but didn't um, wrap up. You said obviously the younger analysts are more likely to see um, a budding China-Russia relationship as the future, where at, but you never finished the, the – on the onverse, um, obverse is that the older you know, people are, are versed in history like we just you – know, hopefully you now are as well um, and can see the fact that you know, it seems like China and Russia should have been friends in the past, but as it turns out, they weren't. And, you know, you mentioned the the uh, senior partner in China. That's really worth digging into because, you know, during the uh, the Soviet Union CCP days, the Soviet Union was obviously the senior partner in the relationship. Today, that's not so apparent. If anything, you know, if China and Russia were to enter into a totally formal um, alliance, declaration, whatever, Russia would be the junior partner by almost any metric today. I think the only thing Russia maybe has on China is um, number of nuclear warheads. And maybe, Mike, you can 
say a couple of other military facts, but it would, it would all be militarily, like in terms of population, GDP, GDP per capita, economic output, um, you know, technology, like level of technology in almost every other metric you want to compare the two countries in, China has pulled ahead. Yeah, the only other area where I could see an advantage for the Russians vis-a-vis the Chinese is that the Russians are actually energy independent, whereas the Chinese are enormous. Like they are the number one importer of energy in the world. And that actually does, uh, I think that actually factors pretty largely into the strategic partnership that the two countries have because if we, okay, so let's actually like take a step back and characterize like what that actually looks like right now. Um, Yeah, and and like synergistic is exactly the right way to put it. Um, Russia is a large exporter of natural wealth. Not like not like natural gas, natural oil. Ga- yeah, natural. Yeah. yeah, like they have lots of they have lots of metal and all kinds of great things in Siberia that the Chinese would love to have for themselves if it wasn't if it wasn't going to cause a storm. Um, but they also have some key pieces of military tech, like aircraft engines, especially helicopter engines, especially actually like because we're going to come around to Ukraine, of course, at some point in this conversation, and it is worth mentioning like Ukraine had this massive. Uh, factory of advanced helicopter engines that could also be applied, had uh, naval applications as well that the Chinese tried to buy out. Um, and the Ukrainians were on the verge of selling it to them. And then Mike Pompeo made a discreet flight over there. And then suddenly the deal was off. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, so, so one thing I want, one thing I want to kind of push back on is you mentioned, you know, Russia military tech, but even that's a concern right now, given the sanctions that the West has levied against Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. You know, one story I'm hearing a lot about in the news is that a lot of advanced Russian military tech is not going to be operable into the future based on their reliance on international components. You know, think semiconductors, obviously the, the, the term in the news today, but like a lot of um, components from, you know, Europe, the United States, Tokyo, um, all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm I, so I, th- I think in a sense, that's actually another avenue of synergy because well, China does not have the technological capacity of the West. You know, semiconductors aren't at the level of Taiwan or anything like that. It is more technologically advanced than Russia, and in a, the situation of autarky that Russia finds itself in, where it can't import anything from the rest of the world, China is not. In that scenario, China is probably the best technological importer that it is able to do business with. Yeah, it's hard for me to really say. Like, I'm not a total expert in this exact field. Like, I don't know how many semiconductors you need to make a Sukhoi 27 engine. Um, but by and large, you're not wrong. What Russia gets out of the relationship is machinery and technology, uh, and also a mar- and, and, and a market. And yeah, a market for its yeah. for its natural goods. Like. You may have seen that the Russian ruble is actually performing relatively well amid all the Russian sanctions, and their uh, their gas and oil exports have gone up, not down, or at least the amount that they're getting paid for it has gone up, not down. And part of that's because the price of oil has gone crazy. Um, but also it's because they're continuing to export to both the Chinese and the Indians quite substantially. So China's getting all this food, oil, gas, some military technology. They export some technology back to the Russians. Um, but by and large, like, what does China need? They need food and energy. Um and they can give you lots of goods in return for that. So the, yeah. the two countries complement each other's economies. And money, yeah. Again, and really, money. And go, yeah, really yeah. want to hit that point. Like the, the Russian access to Chinese financial markets in the wake of the sanctions, the Western sanctions, has been another key element that's allowed the Russian economy to stay afloat in so much as it has. Yeah, it's one of the only ways. Yeah, there is a lot of money in China, and the ability, and you know, this is not <clears throat> this this is not done through official channels. Like, there is no um, official declaration by the CCP instructing um, banks and you know other financial institutions to loan money to Russia. But you know, if you do a little bit of digging, you can see that there is a definite flow of capital out of China towards Russia um, af- in the aftermath of the sanctions. 
Yep, correct. And Chinese banks have been instrumental in providing Russian banks the liquidity that they need to stay open amid this entire process. Um, and they, they have these dreams in the future of de-dollarization completely, like having a new currency for the global market to uh, transact upon um, and having an, al an alternative to SWIFT pop up. But that's all. Um, maybe for a different episode. That's also well, beyond actually, uh, my. Well, go ahead. If you if you if you well, if you're no, smart no, so enough so to know something about it, go for it. Because yeah, yeah, I'm not. So so two points. Yeah. So two points. One, I can discuss that. But then the yeah. Well, so so briefly on that. I mean, the, well, the, the, these two points play together because I think the the key thing to understand is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has given you know well China may not be happy about it and you know all sorts of other stuff it's given China um, kind of an unprecedented look at how Western sanctions would occur you know if for instance maybe they wanted to invade something else question mark starts with tie and ends and one um, <laughs> and this is Mike mentioned an alternative you know non-dollar denominated uh, financial institution for the rest of the world and I think that's really important China is building up alternatives to SWIFT uh, SWIFT stands for society I can't even remember it's the internet it's basically international uh, payment systems at this point SWIFT stands for SWIFT other. everyone knows SWIFT now exactly yeah um, <clears throat> exactly you know, and this, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions that cut Russia off from basically the global economic system as a result has been very instructive for China, it's, you know, so they can start to see um, how to develop their own alternative institutions, financial institutions to um, allow them to continue to operate in the global economy should the West levy sanctions on them again, again, if they were to uh, invade Taiwan. And that's a bit rambly, but I, that's really... I, I think that's a really key point to discuss um, insofar as Russia, Taiwan, China, U Ukraine, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And for those of you listening, honestly, like, let us know if you want to hear a little bit about how this may have informed China's thinking on Taiwan, because I do see that as being maybe a natural follow-up to what we're talking about now. Um, speaking of which, probably about time to address the elephant in the room, which is the Ukraine war and the Chinese stance towards that and how they've contended with Moscow and the West at the same time. Um, so I guess I'll kick it off since this is kind of my hobby horse here. Um, we do not know for sure. By the time you're listening, maybe this will be more clear. We don't know if China actually, we don't know how much the Chinese knew before Russia started this war. Let's just get that out of the way right now. Like there's, there's indications that maybe like Russia was waiting until the end of the Beijing Olympics to avoid bad press for the Chinese. Never mind, like, the last couple times Russia's invaded another country, it's always come, like, on the eve or the back of some Olympics, including 2008 <laughs> with Georgia. Like, literally. <laughs> 2000, it's true. Like, it's hilarious. Look it up. <laughs> I, don't have a, I don't have, like, a strong operating theory behind this, but, like, 2008 with Georgia, it happened, like, right after the Sochi Olympics, and then 2014 with Crimea. Just saying, guys. Like, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's, like, over the past 20 years, it's happened about as often as it hasn't happened. <laughs> mark, <laughs> mark, mark your calendars for 2024 is all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so no, I mean no. Hold on, hold on. Unironically, actually, that is cited as a potential date of um, China's invasion of Taiwan. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're yeah. no, you're absolutely correct. Gosh, Whew, I don't even want to think about that. Um, so let's 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 bring it back to uh, scarily enough a cheerier topic than the prospect of a war with Taiwan. Um, how exactly did China respond to this? Um, in general. They have, I think, in practice, been much more supportive of Russia than they have been telling the world that they are. Uh, and there's a bit of a discrepancy between what they're telling the world and what they're telling their own people. Like when you tune into Chinese state channels, they're not overtly pushing 
everything that the Russians are saying. They're not like championing the Russians as the good guys in the situation, but they make sure the entire world, or at least all of China, is keenly aware of NATO's potential role in instigating this conflict. And they consistently frame NATO as being at fault for having progressed to Russia's doorstep. Um, when you scroll through like Weibo feeds and everything else like that are covering the war, you see way more clips of Putin talking, way more clips of reporters on the ground. You get very, very little coverage of Zelensky, except in cases where he's complaining about the lack of Western support. Um, so deliberately painting a shoddy picture of the Western response and a, like, at least... They're attempting to build understanding of why the Russians are doing what they're doing. Now, when you talk to an average Chinese person, I say, like, it's not like I've done a whole lot of this, but I've watched a lot of street interviews uh, with people from a variety of provinces in China. And most of them, like, they – it's funny because one of the key elements of Chinese foreign policy is respect for sovereignty. And they're having a real hell of a time right now balancing that out with what's happening with their key ally, Russia, right now. Um a lot of Chinese do actually see Russia as the aggressor in the situation, but simply hope for hashtag peace. And when you ask them, well, what should China's role in all this be? The majority of them are saying, well, it's not our thing. This is not our problem. Like, we should not get involved. So I, I, I have a question for you, and this is actually a question because I don't, I don't know the answer. But, you know, is there not an attempt by the CCP to paint Ukraine in the same brush that it paints Taiwan insofar as like Ukraine is actually a part of Russia in the same way that Taiwan is quote actually a part of China. No, not even a little bit. Really? No. Okay. No, no. Interesting. Okay. No. Um, that's, that's how I would have done it if I was a propagandist. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, this is interesting here. Like you can see where there's, uh, they don't do it to the extent that Putin does it. Right. Like they, they, I, I, I'm sure you could find some examples where they acknowledge like the Russian speakers and Donbass and whatever, um, as having once, a part, once upon a time been a part of Russia, and they probably do love to highlight the Crimea referendum with the 90% something people voting to be a part of Russia. Um, but for the most part, they say, like, Ukraine is a sovereign nation. Um, we would like this to be resolved as quickly as possible, but Russia has legitimate security concerns that were ignored by the West and NATO, and this is the only way that they see it uh, to rectify that. Um, so... Again, like they're not again, they're not really taking a clear stance one way or another. They're trying to keep this very ambiguous, and they're doing it deliberately because they would like to keep Russia as a strategic partner. Um, but they're yeah. not. W- and, you know, and, and so one, and I mentioned this earlier, but just to highlight again, you know, obviously you touched on the Chinese state media coverage of the war in Ukraine, but there are other examples of the mismatch between the public stance that China is taking with regards to Russia in terms of, um, you know, neutrality, which is better than, uh, you know, um, agreeing to it on the world stage, but it's not condemning it. And then the actions, again, like the fact that so much Chinese capital is flowing towards Russia, that would not be happening without happening without the implicit blessing of the CCP. And there's there's, there's lots of examples like that, where, um, you know, China is not coming out and saying that they're supporting Russia. But by definition, via their actions, they are providing material support to Russia after its invasion of Ukraine and after the Western sanctions that would prohibit um, any country from doing so. And yet at the same time, a great, well, I would say a great deal of the health of some Chinese financial institutions, I'm not going to say like the entire Chinese economy would implode overnight if they, you know, took a hardline stance in support of Russia. Um, but but there is a secondary concern of the Chinese want to keep Russia around, but they don't want to over-align with Russia either on this particular case, because they do have an interest in keeping their markets open with the West, because that's where all of their cash and frankly, the majority, well, I don't know about Yeah, the no, ma- no, no. So, so very quick, I mean, like, you know, you've probably heard the, um, 
attack on Russia that it's a gas station with an army of nuclear weapons. That's in this case, it's like, yeah, well, China's happy to support Russia for uh, geostrategic concerns. That's Russia is not where the money is. The rest of the world is where the money is. Russia does not have a lot of money, like you know, either in absolute or per capita terms. It's like it's like I think Russia's economy is like the size of Italy. Like despite being ten times or more its population, it's not. If you're go if you're going so, by GDP, yeah, for whatever yeah, you whatever yeah. however much weight you give that, it's like the state of Texas, basically. Yeah. No. Oh, wow. Okay. Um. Yeah. I mean, like you know, so it's um, well, Texas is a pretty big economy. Yeah, let's yeah, be real. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. For sure. Um. You know, so there, there's obviously the natural resources and oil and gas and all that sort of stuff and food, um, which are all of real importance to China. But in terms of like transacting on a strictly commercial level, like there is not really money to be made in China. There's there's strategic concerns where you need to secure your food, your natural gas, your oil, all that sort of stuff. But you don't – but like if China hypothetically could be assured of those resources through other means, they would probably again there's like geostrategic concerns about like borders and whatever but they wouldn't be conducting with um business with Russia on a commercial level at that point is my is my point um do you have anything else on this because one la- uh, we, I know we're going a bit long on today's episode, but one thing I did want to briefly touch on is um Taiwan vis-a-vis Ukraine and you know just to say if there's anything you wanted to discuss in terms of that um I think that's that, I mean, that pretty much covers it. There's there, there's interesting stuff you can look at in terms of like, okay, if we're trying to read the tea leaves as to what the Chinese government is actually thinking about this, first of all, I think when you look at a purely balance of power perspective of all this, I don't think China really cares one way or another as long as Russia's intact and not in chaos at the end of all this. I think they're happy to be the senior partner at the end of this road. And again, they don't want to over-align with any one side, which is why you're not seeing them provide military aid to Russia when the entire Western world is sending military aid to Ukraine because they don't want to uh, run afoul of Western sanctions. And- Aren't they providing like some degree of support? I mean, I remember hearing stories of like China sending like MREs um, to the Russian soldiers because they were they were unequipped. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think you're correct. Like, there might be a little bit of that going on, but it's it's not very substantial. Like, we're not seeing Chinese MREs popping up on the bodies of dead Russian soldiers. Like, I don't know if if, if it's really there. I, I felt like if if a few if enough of those were popping up, we'd be seeing it. Um, what is a little bit more interesting is the potential wave of military. Uh, drones that are going to be sent from Iran because Putin just flew to Tehran. But notably, like, Tehran is already under a lot of those Western sanctions and doesn't really have that much to lose. So, like, maybe this is just because the Chinese don't want to get engaged with all that. That's why they haven't supported the Russians. It's really hard. It's really hard for any one person to say. Yeah, but on the on the topic of Iran, and I'm asking a lot of questions I don't know the answer to, which is bad lawyering on my part. But I mean, you know, how much of that drone technology is Iranian versus Chinese assisted? Like, I don't see Iran Iran as like that. I mean, I guess it has a nuclear program, so I don't know. But um, yeah, I've never seen it as like a technological powerhouse in the sense that like China is today. No, but Iran has bolstered itself with a lot of weapons meant to fight that asymmetric war with the West, and part of that means like the speedboats and the low-cost drones and everything else. And they do have something an equivalent to like the, the Turkish Bayraktar, um, but it's not like whether or not that's made with Chinese components. I mean, almost probably <laughs> given given the state of their partnership, but I'm sure there's some amount of Chinese involvement. But the Chinese aren't blocking the shipment of those goods to Russia in the way that the Swiss are blocking the shipment of munitions and tanks to the uh, Ukrainians. But that's just my inner salt coming out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, okay. So I think, um, 
I think we should probably leave a more in-depth discussion of the parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan to another episode, given the fact that uh, I'm not recording. We've passed the hour mark by now. so is that, there, That's uh, probably anything? a synopsis world record yeah. at this point. Yeah, I think it is. Um, is there anything, and you want to, you have any last words before we head to the outro? I'd like to know if people like episodes going this long, actually. <laughs> I think, I think as long as conversations yeah. are interesting, then, you know, please let us know if this is actually something that you guys are into. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the only like parting word that I would have is that even today, some ideological differences remain between China and Russia, like by and large, it's it's funny how they've gone, how like China and Russia have gone back and forth over this, like the cult of personality and the centralization of power in one person at first. Um, you know, the Russians were wary of Stalin's legacy and the Chinese fawned over it. And then Mao died and the Chinese were super like ashamed and paranoid of one person coming to power. And now we're back full circle where the Chinese are saying it's bad that Putin has so much power invested in his one person. And yet at the same time, we've got Xi Jinping doing his thing, but she has a lot more yeah, well, but she also has a lot more uh, centers of gravity to balance out in his relationship with China. And, you know, you could, in theory, see a world where he doesn't do so well at the next Chinese World Party Congress because of everything that's happened. But I don't think that's going yeah. to happen. Yeah, so, so we, we, did, we did do an episode on um, the inner workings of the CCP. Highly suggest you listen to that if you are interested in that topic. Um, I think it is – you're right, though, to draw that um, – Putin's power is absolute and unquestioned, and there is no rival faction within Russia, whereas there is a active, you know, albeit diminished um, rival faction within China, but that is actually a concern that Xi does have to balance, whereas Putin, it's, um, you know, the only thing he has to worry about is assassination, palace coup, that sort of stuff. There's no, like, um, court intrigue, really, to kick him out, but... um, yeah, anything else? Otherwise, I think we should probably wrap this up. Yeah, I think I think the only last thing that we need to do is you give your amateur prediction for the future, and I will give mine. Um, I guess I'll go first since I'm already thinking of it. Um, I don't expect the relationship to fundamentally change. I expect it to drift ever, ever closer. Um, I I'm skeptical that this is that this time it's actually being driven by personalities. I think that this is motivated almost entirely um, by their mutual grievances with the United States and the American-led world order. Um, I don't think Russia gives a damn about what happens in Taiwan. I don't think China gives a damn about what happens in Ukraine. Um, I don't even think that Ru- that Putin and Xi are really all that close buddies. I mean, they might like each other perfectly fine. But when you look at the fact that China complements Russia's economy perfectly, and frankly, Russia doesn't have many other friends to fall back on at this point, uh, and the Chinese, are, they, comp- they, mu- they mutually complement each other, right? Um, the, de- the degree to which cannot be overstated. And so that is what I think is driving the partnership. They have a mutual enemy and they also have a little bit of mutual benefit uh, tied up with the nature of their economies. Yeah. So one thing I'll say that we actually haven't really touched on this episode um, other than in terms of conflict is they also share an enormous border with each other. Um, you know, they, they have another major consideration in their alliance is the fact that they don't have to worry about each other as much. Obviously you have to, you know, with allies like that, you still have to watch your back. But, um, you know, when you're concerned with, uh, competing with the West in the United States, it is helpful to not have to check your back quite as much. China's relationship with Russia is highly correlative of whether or not they actually intend to invade Taiwan. What do I mean by that? I think that if China is serious about an invasion and reclamation of Taiwan, they are going to need a Russian ally for the reasons that we discussed. Again, food, energy, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, rare earth metals, all that, all that good stuff from Russia. Um, you know, so and if China does want to embark upon a conquest of Taiwan, it is going to need that um, those resources that Russia can provide it. That said, if China 
is you know does somehow make a decision that it is not in their best interest to invade Taiwan either now or in the future, then I think Russia actually does not play that large of a, a purpose because that would be like really a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is probably a the only major invasion they would undertake and the only thing that would end up tripping international condemnation and sanctions to the degree that Russia has. So um, you know I think that if you see China continue to bear hug Russia going forward into the future, I think that signals that they are as serious about their invasion of Taiwan as their rhetoric would have you believe. And just to pepper one final eensy-teensy little bit of complexity on this entire analysis, the Russians are still actively arming some of the militaries that are most hostile to the Chinese, not the Taiwanese, but the Vietnamese and the Cambodians and the Indians, right? So yeah, you can see where they're their interests are not perfectly aligned, and it's not like just because the Chinese say that we want X, the Russians are going to give them X. So, as you can hopefully see by now, dear listener, the future of the China-Russia relationship is much less certain than declarations of friendships with no limits would have you believe, if history is anything to go off of. Having said that, there are obvious synergies between the two countries in terms of economics and geopolitics, and those are drawing them closer together. While the future is always uncertain, the fate of Russia and China in the 21st century is doubly so. In the words of the bard, Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So with that, we want to remind all our listeners that we are doing a mailbag at some point down the road. Please email us your questions at thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. That is thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. No spaces, no periods. Um, and we will answer your question on air if it is as ill-conceived, ill-thought-out, and of ill repute as the rest of this show was today. Uh, <laughs> Um, So with that, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to yet another episode of the Synopsis Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.